Hebrews chapter 11. We'll read the first three verses as somewhat of a review of the chapter, and then we'll move to the fourth verse, which is basically our passage that we'll study today. And if you want to be cheating ahead a little bit, you can take your Bible and maybe stick your thumb in Genesis chapter number 4. Hebrews chapter 11 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good report. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. And we spoke last week a little bit on this idea of heroes. I mentioned it was a sermon series I'd begin preaching to you on Sunday night. Preacher came to me on Monday and said, no, you're going to do that one on Sunday morning. And I said, well, you're the boss, and so I'm going to do that. Hebrews chapter 11, we studied last week somewhat the fundamentals or the foundation of our faith. You've got to understand what faith is if we're going to start a series on the heroes of the faith. The book of Hebrews was written to a group, a, a believing congregation of Jews, but they wanted to slide back into their old ways of Judaism. They were comfortable doing the practices, the ceremonial practices of the law and of their religion, and they felt like that brought them to a place of acceptance before God. But what the writer of Hebrews is teaching them is there is nothing that brings you to a place of acceptability before God unless you be brought there by the Lord Jesus Christ. Unless you be placed before Christ in, or before God in Christ, you're not going to have long before God at all. And so that's what the writer of Hebrews is mentioning to them. And he's speaking to them about how faith is the superior aspect of all Christian life. Without faith, there is no Christian life. Without faith, there is no Christian duty. We must have faith if we are to live the Christian life. Last week we spoke on the first three verses and we mentioned it kind of like this. The first verse was the description of faith. That's what the Bible says. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. That's a perfect description of what faith is because faith allows us the evidence to believe what God says. Now, don't get it wrong. Faith is not the invisible lasso that allows us to bring into captivity the future that we want for ourselves. Faith is the ability to trust God's word and the promises that he makes. Faith is not so much rooted in the prospect of the future as it is the promises of the past. As God said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. There is no temptation taken you, but such is common to man. He is faithful to continue. The Bible says, he that started a good work in us will perform it until the day of redemption. And those are the promises that our faith is rooted in. We spoke about the description of faith and the deeds of the faith. In verse number 2, the Bible says, for by it, that's their faith... The elders obtained a good report. And there is no deed worth speaking about in the entire Old Testament that did not have its foundation in faith. All the great victorious stories of the Old Testament, all the lessons we learned in Sunday school growing up, all sprung forth from a people or a person full of faith. And then thirdly, we looked at the demand of faith. And that said, through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. So that the things which are seen were not made uh, of things which do appear. And the demand of faith is this. Faith 
cannot be sight. If it is of sight, it is not of faith. That's why I believe the writer of Hebrews uses creation as the ultimate uh, 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 faith proof. Is because no one was at creation save the Lord Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and God the Father. Nobody was there. And even the writer of the book of Genesis, Moses, he wasn't there. And yet we take his word as if he was. Why do we do that? Because our faith allows us to see that God promised what was true. The Bible says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. We don't buy that because Moses was some expert witness. We believe that because God said it. So the demand of faith is not that we'd be able to see it, but that our faith would be able to believe it as God has stated it. Really, if you wanted to boil it down, what we looked at last week is what faith is, what faith does, and what faith allows for us as believers. Hebrews chapter 11, 4 is where we find ourselves this week, and I'll be honest with you. The reason we started this series was because of this verse. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice. By the way, don't you want your life to be more excellent to God? I mean, we have a world full of mediocre Christianity. Of of laissez-faire, of lukewarm Christianity. That's the world that we live in. I want my life to be more excellent than that. I want my life to be pleasing to God. And by the way, He is worthy of a life more excellent than what most of us are living. More excellent. And by faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it, he being dead, yet speaketh. Now take your Bibles to Genesis chapter number 4. Most of us are... Pretty familiar with the story of Cain and Abel, so I wouldn't really have to recite it or go over it very long, but it is worth at least sticking your finger in and we'll spend some time there this morning. I remember growing up, there were certain people that I idolized, certain people I looked up to. I remember one time I I was really into fishing and I watched all the fishing shows. I'm talking about uh, fishing with Bill Dance and uh, uh, Jimmy Houston and Roland Martin. And I mean, I, all the big wigs of fishing. I used to idolize these guys and love these guys. And I even bought some helicopter lures from Bill Dance and they caught me a pretty big bass, but man, that was an as seen on TV crock right there. But I remember one time I sat down to, I told my dad I wanted to write Bill Dance a letter. And so dad always carried a yellow legal tab in his, uh, in his briefcase. And, and I had uh, told dad what I wanted to say. And so what dad did is as I recited to him what I wanted to say, uh, he wrote it down. So essentially dad, that day you were my Siri as you recorded what I told him to say. And he was about as accurate actually. Uh, and so... Uh, But I was telling him what I wanted to say, and he wrote it down, and then he said, but you don't want the letter to come from me, it's from you. And so what I was then tasked with was taking another sheet of yellow paper and writing down the exact words that I had recited to him in my, you know, seven-year-old handwriting. And I'll never forget, as I was going through there, I'd get halfway down the sheet of paper and I would mess up, and I would scratch it out. But I said, man... I don't want to send a piece of paper with scratch out and markups on it, so I would chunk that piece of paper. I did it again, and I messed up again. 
I did it again and I messed up again. I did it again and I got almost all the way to the end and I did it, I messed up again and I chunked that piece of paper. By the end of that, I really wasn't all that intent on writing Bill Dance anymore, so I just never even sent the letter. But I wanted my hero to see my words and I wanted those words to meet a certain criteria, a quality that I wanted to send my hero. I'll never forget growing up, I used to, I'm a Duke fan, Duke basketball, and I used to idolize the Duke University basketball team, and, and specifically Coach K, Mike Krzyzewski, he's the winningest all-time Division I men's basketball coach. I mean, he's tremendously successful at what he does. He's built a program there. And so as I was outside shooting baskets at my home, I remember shooting him, and while a lot of people visualize like being Michael Jordan and man when I was growing up all these kids would go to the basket with their tongues out I never did that because I was afraid somebody would take my picture and hold it over my head so I never did that uh there was uh, Alan Iverson was really big Mandy kind of looked up to him and idolized him a little bit and uh, she she dreadlocked her hair because out no no I'm just kidding I'm just kidding but but you see uh, we have these heroes, but my hero was not the basketball players. My hero was the coach. And so growing up, this is what I, what I envisioned. I was outside shooting baskets, you know, shooting on my little hoop outside my house. And I imagined that Coach K, every car that drove down the driveway or drove down our road, I imagined it was Coach K. And I imagined that I would wait for cars to come down the road. And I would wait and wait and wait. And right about the time they get where they could see down my driveway and see my basketball goal, that's when I would shoot and hold it so that the car could see me. And I just imagined that Coach K was driving down some residential road in Joshua, Texas. And he was going to see me and find my hidden talent. You know, and, and then he'd come down the road. Hey, would you play basketball for me? I've never seen a shot like yours because it's so busted up. But that, that's what I pictured. This is my hero. As we get into this chapter of these heroes, what you've got to understand is when the writer of Hebrews is speaking of these men and these women, these are the heroes of their faith. And he is using these people somewhat as this is the, this is the life in which we are to live. And man, when you drop some of these names to these Hebrew believers, Abel and Noah and Abraham, and Jacob, and Joseph, and Isaac. And when you hear these names, man, it just has to ring in their mind. They're saying, this is the best of the best. And yet the writer of Hebrews is not a making a big deal about them. He's making a big deal about the faith that they have. And while we might not consider Abel to be some giant of the faith, or pillar of the faith, in fact, you don't hear very many sermons about Abel, actually, the Bible chooses in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 4 to use him as the very first example for faith of a lasting legacy. Notice with me a few things this morning. I want you to see first of all the right of faith. Genesis chapter 4 verse number 1 the Bible says, And Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain. Cain was the firstborn. And said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. We'll notice first of all the right of faith this morning. What I mean by that is it takes a little bit of a study of the passage to see where this point comes from. 
But these two young men are born the first ever to be born into the world. Cain is the firstborn and Abel his younger brother. The Bible says in verse number one, when Cain is born, here is his mama's reaction. I have gotten a man from the Lord. You can say that with whatever inflections you want. I have gotten a man from the Lord, however you want to. But you can, you can understand that there is some excitement about this. Cain is born. Have you ever seen one of those babies that, you know, isn't really all that pretty after they're born? Most of them aren't. They all have cone heads and their faces look defigured. We're like, I think it'll figure itself out. You know, the doctor said his nose won't always look like that. But when, when Eve held this child, she said, a very like Lion King moment of the Bible. I have gotten a man. From the Lord. I mean, this is a big deal. This is the first thing, this is the first birth that there's ever been. This is the first. I mean, they didn't have the Discovery Channel to break them into it. I mean, this is the first. And she says, I have gotten a man from the Lord. I want you to notice in verse number two after the birth of Abel. And she again bare his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of sheep. Do y'all notice something missing there? Cain's birth, I have gotten a man from the Lord. Abel's birth, go keep the sheep. (laughs) So it was in my household growing up. Mandy's the basketball player, and have you met her little brother? (laughs) Maybe some of you can identify with growing up in a household where you lived a little bit in the shadow of the older. That's what's happening here. In fact, to go even deeper into this, do you know what the name Cain means in Hebrew? It literally means acquired or to get as of a possession given. I have gotten from the Lord. To go deeper in the study, what you'll find is, I personally believe in Genesis chapter 3.15, God makes a promise to Eve It's the first prophecy in all the Bible. And he says, I will give of the seed of the woman. I will give to the woman the seed. And of her seed, he will bruise the head of the serpent while the serpent will bruise his heel. Now, right after the fall of man, God's passing out judgments. And before he removes them from the garden, he gives them the solution of restoration. And that's the way God always works. Before he sends people away, he always gives them a way back to him. Hey, listen to me. Nobody ever goes to hell without God first saying, hey, you can have a way to me. And that's what God does. By by giving giving this promise to Eve, He says, Eve, it was your fault that you were removed from the garden. And through you, I will give the solution back to the garden. You removed yourself from paradise, and through you, I will restore you to paradise. And He says, I will give you seed. Now, for us, being on this side of Calvary, we understand the fulfillment of that promise was not Cain, but in fact it was Jesus Christ, because the woman does not have seed that belongs to the man. But the seed of the woman was in fact a prophecy that Jesus Christ would be born of a virgin, as Isaiah says, as Matthew and Luke say, he would be born of a virgin, and that's what happens. But to Eve, she doesn't know all this is coming. 
And as God says, hey, Eve, I am going to give you seed. And from that seed, it will be the way back into the garden. You'll overcome the serpent. So as she has Cain, this is what she thought, I believe. This is the solution. God gave me this. Could you imagine the guilt that Eve must have carried every day for removing her family from the garden? Hey, by the way, Adam, Adam played right into it, but Eve took of the fruit first. She carried that guilt and the weight of that decision every single day as they were outside of paradise, as Adam went to work, as she felt labor pains. She dealt with the guilt of that and she has Cain and she says, I have gotten the solution to all of our problems. I have gotten a man from the Lord. Here's what Abel's name means. Empty. Boy, talk about rough. Cain, this is God's gift to our family. Abel, I kind of had an empty feeling after I birthed him. And that makes sense, really, if you think about it. Empty. Vain. Could you imagine every time your name is called, that's what comes to mind. Hey, Abel, supper's ready. Oh, man. Empty. And this was the house that Abel grew up in. Constantly living under the shadow of his older brother who his mom, I believe, favored more than he. Can you imagine growing up in that environment? And yet, as we read verse number 4, the Bible does not say, by faith Cain offered a more excellent sacrifice. Hey, look, Cain had every right to the faith that Abel had, but the difference was Abel actually had the faith. See, faith does not belong to the elite of this world. God does not birth some into this world having chosen them to be the select, to be the true and the faithful. In fact, you'll find the Bible says, God is long-suffering to us. We're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Faith is available to every man. Faith doesn't belong to the rich. Faith doesn't belong to the the well-skilled or talented. Faith belongs to whosoever will. And that's the right of faith. There is no income uh, level that you must attain before you can have faith. There's no price tag to it. Whosoever will can have faith. And Abel, growing up in an environment that was probably difficult, Abel growing up into an environment where he was not the preferred and he was not the favorite, guess what Abel had going for him? While his mama may have preferred Cain, God preferred them both and Abel had The faith. Faith is available to all who will recognize their brokenness, their emptiness, and their weakness before God. See, that's the problem for Cain. He was the chosen. He was the select. And in his pride, he did not submit his faith to God's word. Faith doesn't belong to the best. It belongs to the rest. You see... I remember the story of King Saul, the the one preferred, the one that stood head and shoulders above everybody. It's as if he had been selected and anointed to be the king of Israel from the beginning. Even Samuel saw him. He had to stick out like a sore thumb amongst all those short Hebrews. There's our warrior. There's our champion. There's our king. 
When King Saul is presented to the people, nobody had any, uh, uh, any problem with it. Nobody quarreled about that because everybody saw he looked worthy to be a king. Amen. King David, on the other hand, when Samuel first saw him, he goes through the brothers of Jesse, uh, or the sons of Jesse, and here Eliab is presented, and, and Samuel made the same mistake he made the first time. He says, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. And yet the Lord said, no, it's not Eliab. He goes on down the other brothers of David, and he gets to, J- he gets to the end and says, are these all your sons, Jesse? And Jesse says, well, there's one, but surely it can't be him. He's uh, out keeping the sheep. He says, go get him. Uh, David is retrieved and brought to Samuel. And, and then uh, the Lord says, hey, Samuel, look not on the outward appearance. Look not on the countenance of David. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but God looketh at the heart. It's just a few short chapters later that you see David is commissioned by Jesse to go down to the battle. You know the battle where Goliath sat, the battle where Goliath comes out every day to the bottom of the valley and presents himself to all the mighty Hebrew soldiers and he looks at them and he says, hey, is anybody going to challenge me? Is anybody going to take me? And all those mighty soldiers trained from their youth being uh, soldiers and warriors with their swords and their spears and their bows and their arrows and their armor, all of them stand up there cowering. And yet King Saul is present. And King Saul the chosen. And King Saul the mighty warrior stands up there and he doesn't go fighting. And here's David. Asked by his daddy not to go fight a war. Asked by his daddy to go deliver some food to his brothers so they might be able to fight a cause worthy of death. And here's David. Hey, I brought you guys something. (gasps) Who's this Philistine down in the valley talking about my God like that? David says, is there not a cause? Is there not somebody willing to go fight this giant because he's blaspheming my God? King Saul, head and shoulders above everybody. David, just a little boy, ruddy, the Bible calls him, little red-headed runt. Faith did not belong to Saul on that day. Faith belonged to David. The right of faith this morning, you don't have to be the best of this world. You just have to be willing to accept God at his word. Faith is available to all in this room this morning. The right of faith. Secondly, I want you to notice the respect toward faith. The respect toward faith. Genesis chapter 4 verse number 5. The Bible says. But unto Cain. And to his offering. He had not respect. And Cain was very wroth. And his countenance fell. If you'd like more information. In verse number 3. The Bible says. And in the process of time. It came to pass. That Cain brought of the fruit of the ground. An offering of the Lord. Unto the Lord. And Abel he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord respected or had respect unto Abel and to his offering. In other words, Abel brings the firstling of his flock, whereas Cain brings fruits and vegetables. It makes sense because Cain was a farmer and uh, uh, Abel was a shepherd. And there has been much debate throughout the centuries as to why God had respect unto Abel's offering and did not respect Cain's offering. There have been some theories thrown out and many of them are, uh, these are they. Number one, it did not follow the pattern that God had laid out before. In other words, when Adam and Eve fell in the garden, they sewed for themselves uh, aprons of figs. 
They clothed themselves and, and they were ashamed of what they had done. And so they, were, they realized they were open and naked before God. And so they sewed for themselves figs to cover up their sinfulness. And God says, hey, that's not going to cut it. And what he does is he goes through the garden and he finds an innocent animal. Innocent animal who had no part in the sin who did not sin, he, he had no sway in the decision-making process of Eve. He goes and grabs an innocent animal, slays it, and makes coats of skin for Adam and Eve. See, that was the first example that there is no remission of sin without the shedding of blood. Man can fabricate, man can sew together all that they want to cover up their, their uh, uh, iniquity before God. But the Bible says that it takes the death of the innocent to cover up that sin. Aren't you so glad that Jesus Christ had no part of this world's sin? He was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. Peter says it like this, there was no guile found in his mouth. He was not guilty. Even Pilate said it, I find no fault in this man. And Jesus was the innocent lamb of God that was placed on the cross of Calvary for yours and my sin. Hey, we were Adam and we were Eve and we failed and we should have dealt with the consequences of our sin. And yet Jesus, the innocent Lamb of God, took our sin from us. And the problem with Cain's offering, at least to some, was that it did not follow the pattern that God had laid out. God had told them the prescription of this sacrifice, and yet Cain decided to do it his own way. In fact, a pretty interesting thing to note is, this is the departure from true religion to false religion. Hey, Cain was religious. Cain came to church. Cain actually worshipped, but not according to what God desired. Amen. You have true religion represented by Abel. You have false religion represented by Cain. Another step further, you have true religion being persecuted by false religion. Yes. Hey, that's the way it works. Amen. Throughout the world's history, true Christians have been the most persecuted people of faith than any throughout, throughout history. Why is that? Because false religion always persecutes that which is true. It didn't follow the pattern that God had laid out. Not only that, but notice secondly, some people would say it was not of prime quality. In Genesis, the Bible says specifically that Abel's offering was of the firstlings of the flock. It was the very best. It was the spotless. It was the, the perfect. It was the firstborn. But it does not say that of Abel, or I'm sorry, of Cain. It just says Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering to the Lord. And some would say that maybe Cain brought a little apples that weren't quite ripe or tomatoes that had a few bruises on them and they didn't meet the quality and standard that God deserves. Some would even say that it was not offered with the proper attitude and I think this is the case. I think you can absolutely say Cain's attitude was not right. How do you know that? Because after God corrects him, Cain gets angry. And even God says to Cain, hey, Cain, why are you wroth? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Amen. Just do right. Hey, that's the problem with a lot of Christians today. They just need to do right. Uh, most Christians aren't sinning because of ignorance. They're sinning because they're ignoring it. Amen. Uh, just do right. Amen. 
And, uh, and Cain did not come with a proper attitude because God graciously and tenderly says, Hey, Cain, you're always accepted if you'll bring to me what I've asked. You'll always be accepted if you do what I've asked you to do. But Cain gets angry. His countenance falls and that's why he eventually slays his brother in Abel in anger. Proverbs chapter 21 says, The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. I think that goes hand in hand with what was going on in Cain's life. But can I say this morning that I think all of these were just side effects of a much larger problem? Yeah, these were all issues. I believe all of them are accurate, but I don't think they were the main reason. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 4 says this, By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. What was the differentiating factor between the two sacrifices? One was offered in faith, the other was not. Where does faith come from? Well, the Bible tells us that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Somewhere along the way, God had told Abel and God had told Cain what was expected of them. For without the word of God, there is no faith. And, and so God had given them his word and faith allowed Abel to accept God. Whatever he said, whatever he wanted, Abel would do. Cain did not do that. We have the respect towards faith. God appreciated Abel's sacrifice because he presented it in faith. And then thirdly, I want you to notice this evening, or this morning, I'm so used to preaching Sunday nights. I want you to notice this morning the reward of faith. How many of you would believe this morning that it is always worthwhile to have faith as a Christian? It always pays to have faith as a Christian. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 4 says that Abel had faith. But we'll find in Genesis chapter 4 verse 8 exactly how it paid for Abel. And Cain talked with Abel his brother... And it came to pass then when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and slew him. How well did it pay for Abel to have faith? Excuse me. I mean, this story is not one where they say everybody lived happily ever after. In fact, nobody does in this story. Abel dies and Cain is miserable the rest of his life. You say, Brother Andrew, you're you're not making this faith thing sound too intriguing. Well, one reason is because I'm not selling insurance. (laughs) I'm not selling you anything. Listen to me. There are a lot of preachers that promote a faith gospel that want to make you think that faith is somehow the best policy that you can buy or somehow that if you have faith, your life's all going to be roses and tulips and man, you're just not going to have any issues. Tell that to Abel. The first man in the Bible that demonstrated faith paid the ultimate sacrifice for it. And guess what? That pattern is repeated over and over and over and over. You could ask Stephen how his faith paid as he stands up in the opposition of a bunch of religious zealots and he tells them exactly that they were the ones that crucified Jesus and without them repenting, they're on their way to hell. How did it it pan out for Stephen? Oh, life was pretty good for him. They took him out of the city and stoned him to death. What 
is the reward of our faith? I'll tell you the reward of our faith. It takes currency that must be spent in this time, in this world, and somehow changes it and exchanges it for currency that can be spent in the next. Faith allows the days and the hours of this life to somehow have an effect on that which is to come. Listen to me. I want you to see this in Hebrews chapter 11 for it's the most important part of this sermon. And if you haven't paid attention, pay attention now, please. I want you to take note of the last phrase of this verse. And by it, his faith, he being dead, yet he speaketh. Hey, for some people, the greatest impact they'll ever have in this world the most that they will ever affect their community is the space that their obituary takes up in the newspaper. Some people will live this life, spend every second that they have and not make a difference on anyone. What a miserable life. And yet the Bible says that Abel, hey, by the way, Cain has more verses written about him than Abel does about him. And yet the Bible says, Abel, he being dead, yet he speaketh. His testimony, the testimony of his faith speaks louder than any sermon could ever preach. The testimony of his faith speaks to us this morning that it is always worthwhile to have faith as a Christian. Faith. Hey, the reward is not always noticed in your bank account. The reward is not always noticed in the ease and comfort of this life. The reward is noted in the next life when God looks at his children and says, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of my kingdom. That's what faith does. As preachers, we have an interesting view on what other people see. You see, I see behind the curtains a lot because of my role in ministry. When people go through their hardest times, they call us. They go through a divorce, they want counseling, preacher, what do I do? How do I handle this? The, the, we very rarely get the meeting where somebody comes in and says, preacher, would you believe everything's going well right now? That's just, you don't call the preacher when that's happening. We get the meetings where everybody's falling apart. And guess what? That's okay because God fixes those that are broken. But we get the hard phone calls. We get the joy of preaching funerals, which is, by the way, one of the hardest things you do in ministry. Somebody calls you, say, preacher, my cousin, my brother, my sister, my father, my mother, they just passed away. And I would like it if you would perform the ceremony. And I've seen this take several faces. Sometimes the deaths are tragic and sudden and they're very difficult to preach because the whole family, everybody in the auditoriums, they're taken back. They don't know what to do. And oftentimes they look for answers to questions that you just don't have. Hey, preacher, why did this happen? Can't tell you. I don't know. I've also been able to be a part of the funerals where, 
Man, it's a child of God who lived a life acceptable to God. I've been in those funerals and you can ask preacher, you can ask Dr. House, you can ask anybody who's ever had a part in them. There's a celebratory feel about those, whereas there's not about the others. So there's really two types of funerals. Those where the preacher can come up behind the pulpit and say, man, what a wonderful thing that this faithful child of God lived the way that he did. And he did not have works without faith, but his faith produced works of righteousness. It was evident he lived in the spirit. It was evident he had an impact on people. It was evident because Jesus made a difference in his life. We get those funerals sometimes. But I tell you, it seems like more and more often we get the funerals where we have to lie. See, you put the preacher in a bad spot. Because nobody wants to hear the preacher say, well, I'll just tell you. He rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. And, and, and I, maybe I'm sharing this and you're thinking, man, how callous are you? I'm just telling you. It's very difficult from a preacher's standpoint to have to make up stuff that just did not exist in a person's life. I went to one funeral and literally the man was so rough and callous and just, he was just a hard person to be around. Uh, I remember the preacher said, well, all so-and-so, he's just a little rough rough around the edges and everybody knew what the preacher was saying nobody liked him and I've seen preachers use some of the best phrases you know we have phrases and uh, old brother so and so he made a profession of faith back in 1992 and man I'm thankful today that if he did what he said he did God, he's in heaven with God and we We use these things to ignore the fact that their faith actually never produced any sort of works in their life. It's a hard deal. And I've I've been a part of those funerals where preachers try to describe without the ability to how good of a life someone lived. We use words at those funerals like faithful, servant of God, And yet it seems like our vocabulary is limited to describe the impact they had on real people. I mean, they affected generations and generations and generations of people for the cause of Christ. And and the preacher cannot adequately describe the positive impact this person had for Jesus. But what I've noticed in these situations is no matter what the preacher says, the congregation knows the reality. The preacher can lie. The preacher can make up stuff, make him sound better, say a joke here and there. But usually in those situations, everybody knows what kind of life this person lived. And they know the preacher's being sensitive and tender, and they know that they don't want to offend anybody, so everybody gets it. And in those other funerals where a servant of God goes home to be with the Lord, everybody knows that the preacher could not adequately describe the impact they've had on each person in the auditorium. I've been in those. What I'm trying to say is the sermon that will be preached at your funeral will not be preached from the pulpit. It will be preached from your casket. Because no matter what my notes read, your life speaks louder than my words. And of Abel, the Bible says, he being dead, yet 
He speaketh the sermon of a dead man. What's your life going to preach? What impact will you have for Christ? Sure, you can take up some space in the obituary section and that be the end of your life, or you can live for Jesus here and now. And the Bible say, you even being dead, you'll still be speaking to generations to come. What kind of life are you living? Are you living a life of legacy? Legacy. 